Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Steph, what's going on? What's going on? Nothing much, really. I am dealing with the consequences of my actions. So, you know how, so I got my husband's car, you know, I tricked out his ride, I pimped his ride. Um, Mm -hmm. And since then, I have, of course, been enjoying driving it. So I I like to drive it sometimes, Um, especially when I'm going grocery shopping because he has an SUV. Mm-hmm. Well, yesterday I was driving it and I got into an accident. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. Was it a bad accident? Were you good? What's up? What's crazy is that, okay, so I was making a right-hand turn and somebody else was making, it was like one of those rolling turns that you can make. Mm-hmm. And so they started rolling. I started rolling, but they stopped suddenly. And so I literally, it was a tap in the back of their truck. But mm. child, when I looked at the front of the car, the bumper falling off. Is- oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, no. Oh, man. Child, oh, my God. I'm so, I was just so upset. Sad, like, yeah, damn. So, um, yeah. Damn. <laughs> I'm gonna take it to the shop tomorrow. I was like, I, I was like, I'm gonna take responsibility because the car literally drove off. Like, they didn't even stop. Like, and so I was trying to catch up with them. Oh, yeah. They didn't I, even nope. stop for like to settle the, the dispute. Nope. Nope. They literally drove <laughs> off. Did they even know you hit them? Like, was it? Cause it, like I said, it was really light and it was a, it was a truck too. And mm-hmm. so what happened is I don't think anything happened to theirs. They had one of those little, I guess where you can like attach things to the back of the truck. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what my car hit and that's what caused the most damage. So mm-hmm. I don't, I, I guess nothing happened to theirs cause literally it was so light. They probably didn't even, they might not have even felt it. Yeah, probably not. Them pickup trucks, man, them things are doable. When I got my first accident, my joint was totaled. And that car, that car just had a little scratch, a little truck, a couple scratches, no dents, no nothing. Mm, mm. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure that car was fine. But yeah, that sucks, man. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm sad. I got to take it to the shop tomorrow. I was like, I take responsibility. I'll, I'm going to pay for it. Because it was just a gift to him. So I can't make him pay for a car that I, I messed up and I had just pimped out. So, <laughs> Dang. Well, you know, I wish I had better news, but my week has been interesting too. What uh, happened? Not, I mean, you know, nothing much. Just a lot of bad news this week. One, um, well, one, we went to the Beyonce concert, Beyonce Jay-Z concert. So that okay. was fun, but we went on Thursday and we had the longest rain delay because of thunderstorms. Oh. So the concert was supposed to start at like 8 p.m. Like they did, you know, the couple priests, you know, the, the opening acts. And then, you know, Beyonce, everybody's ready. Beyonce supposed to come on next. We're like, what happened? Next, you know, the police officers get on stage, like, listen to everybody. 
You got thunderstorms, so we need everybody to like kind of evacuate, yada, yada, yada. That concert in Wanda starts like 11 15. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's crazy. We didn't get out to like 1 30. I mean, they did the whole show, credit to them. They did the whole show. Uh, but it was late, so it was kind of weird because everybody was like hype in the beginning, but as the later it got, it was like, oh, I'm sitting down, chilling. So it was still fun. Then the next day, you know, we had ordered, me and Chris ordered a new couch. Um, so the people were supposed to come in to measure, see, you know, get the couch in. They come in talking about the couch won't fit. And oh, we really my wanted. <laughs> we really, really wanted that couch, man. So we were really disappointed. And that's now we got to go back couch hunting again. And then finally, we were supposed to be um, going to Chicago this weekend to for Kristen's grandfather's 90th birthday. Oh, uh, I was having a big birthday. dinner. But we didn't. We couldn't go because on Friday they canceled all the flights. What? They canceled all the flights. Yes, because it was supposed to be a thunderstorm. It didn't even rain. Oh my god! So mad. Then the flights they had that we could book to try to get there on time. It was like a little lunch birthday dinner thing, uh-huh. um, and we wouldn't be able to get into like 11 p.m. the next day. You know, that's well, cr- and that's so sad. That's such a special occasion. I know. So upset. So I'm like, goodness, man. Could anything just go right this week? <laughs> uh, so yeah. So yeah, I feel you. Just wasn't a good good week for BHD, huh? No, it wasn't. <laughs> but hopefully, it'll look up. I'll have an update for y'all next week. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we got some better news coming in next week. We will prevail. <laughs> oh, I guess that's our our own personal old lord news of the week. I guess we can get into some real old lord news of what's been going on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Um, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old lore news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Speaking of Chicago, I actually came across a very disturbing video last night. Mm-hmm. It was of uh, it was a truck, uh, kind of like an eighteen wheeler that carries like freight stuff. Come to find out, and there were a bunch of police officers in front of it, and they are being confronted uh, by some guys in a Chicago neighborhood because what the police officers did was park a 18 wheeler, have it wide open with Jordans filled in the truck. And they parked it right in front of like a basketball court where like some young black people were enjoying themselves and not thinking about committing any crimes. And Mm. so what they were doing was trying to bait people into stealing Jordan so they could arrest them. It's crazy. Like, can they enjoy their day? Like, are you that hard up for um, arrests um, that you need to try to like trap people into committing crimes? Like you can't fight the real crime out there? I feel like that got to be some form of entrapment. Like that can't be legal. And like, why would you do that? Like, oh my God, man, that's crazy. And what really pissed me off is because what I loved was that these young men were confronting these police officers. And one of the young men was like, I bet you wouldn't do that in your neighborhood. And guess what the police officer said? What do you say? Um, he was like, no, they wouldn't. It never would have been done. But let's talk about the shoes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Mad disrespectful, man. That's crazy. 
Definitely. So crazy. And I'm I'm just really not comfortable with that. Like fight. There's plenty of crime in Chicago. Fight the real crime instead of trying to like trap people who might see a crime of opportunity, which mm-hmm. happens across all race. So like, I don't mm-hmm. want to hear why they shouldn't be stealing. Honey, people take advantage of crimes of opportunity. Don't try to trap people that ain't doing wrong. Mm-hmm. So. Trust me, t- any teenage boys, that would be an appealing situation, whether you whether you somewhere else, whether you're in the suburbs, whether you're not in the suburbs. Come on now. Yeah. And then that's crazy. Okay. Yeah. So the other story, I want to talk about your president. Mm. So you heard about LeBron James opening up this school. Shout uh, out to him. Shout out to LeBron. Free tuition, free uniforms, free bicycles, free transportation, free breakfast, free tuition to um, uh, University of Akron, GED mm-hmm. placement services for parents. So he had an interview with Don Lemon a couple of days ago. Your president then gets online and is like, LeBron James was just interviewed by the dumbest man on television, Don Lemon. He made LeBron look smart, which isn't easy to do. I like Mike. Yo, like, oh my goodness, my goodness, man. What is this guy doing? You know, that really, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm kind of used to a lot of Trump's antics now, but that one really like irritated me. In a lot of ways. I'm like, LeBron is out here doing something amazing for his community and just talking about it in an interview. And then why are you going to go here and like try to destroy this positive thing that he's doing? Like, mm-hmm. and they call him and then disrespect him by calling them stupid. You know, both yes, of them. Both of them. Like these are way more intelligent than you. I mean, yeah. you can't even form like complete sentences sometimes. <laughs> but like, let's, that's neither here nor there. But like actually doing something positive, you know, you'll hear Republicans talking about like, oh, you know, you shouldn't depend on the government like and stuff like that. Well, this is somebody who is like doing something outside of the government, Mm -hmm. doing way more than a lot of public schools are even doing for their kids. Mm -hmm. And this is the criticism. And I mean, Trump wasn't the only one. There were like really weird and lame tweets from people that was like, uh, can my kid take part? Oh, wait, he's white. So the answer is no. Oh my! And another person was like, even white kids, LeBron, how about conservative kids? Apparently not. You're a dummy. First of all, it's for kids that live in his neighborhood. It's, it's, that's, that's disrespectful, man. I never, I never saw, you know, just somebody doing something so positive like that. And then people just trying to just mess it up and talk trash about it's crazy. It's president of the United States, man. This is what we got. This is what we're working with. Yeah. Uh, uh, Hopefully. Anyway. Yeah. And this final thing is, it might not exactly be oh Lord news, but it it was related to our topic for today. So I was just like, "Mm, I guess it's something that we can think about. So there was recently, uh, Rihanna is on the cover of British Vogue Mm -hmm. um, for September. And her, the way her makeup is done, she has like these pencil thin eyebrows and um, a Latina uh, writer penned an article accusing Rihanna or raising a question of whether Rihanna was a co- uh, appropriating uh, Chola or like Mexican like gang um, 
it's like the eyebrows that like female members of like Mexican, uh, they have a gang affiliation. They call okay. them Chola eyebrows. And so like she pins this article and was like, you know, if I were to do this as a Latina woman, I'd be, you know, people say that I was in a gang. They say like all of these bad things about me. But when Rihanna is doing it on the cover of Vogue, she's praised as this like fashion icon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I just thought that that was, an interesting article, you know, especially given today's topic. I wasn't really sure how much I bought it because the author herself was like, you know, historical figures like Josephine Baker, who is a black performer for from the 1920s, you know, had these eyebrows. This was like more of like 1920s flapper culture. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was the vibe of Rihanna's um cover or spread so i don't know but i thought it was interesting because that's kind of what we're asking today who can appropriate and you know what does appropriation mean yep the big question um this is what today's topic is about and i said yeah good segue into it because we see this all a lot of times in these situations when celebrities or whomever are wearing certain hairstyles or wearing certain clothes doing certain things and people are like hey is appropriating is it not singing certain songs right and we're trying to figure that out a lot of times, you know, it is appropriate. People don't understand what it is. Maybe it's not appropriate. And I think it's important because we do see that a lot of times when we do talk about appropriation, um, it's, you know, the question is, can, can you know, at least say is, is a, if, a, if a white person like Kim Kardashian is wearing something called Bo Derek braids and <laughs> contribute to her own <laughs> and, and not attributing it to, you know, black folk who've been wearing this style, you know, since the beginning of time, um, but then, you know, you can hear the vice versa. Well, do black do black folk appropriate white people and white culture, right? And and is that possible? And um, a lot of conversations going along with that. Mm-hmm. And we address that in today's conversation with our guests, uh, Dr. Tamara Brown, Dr. David Terry, and Dr. Diara Robertson, um, who all were a part of this book, uh, wrote in this book, chapters in this book called Soul Thieves. And so we'll be talking about their contributions in the in that book and um they each talk about different aspects of appropriation from music and hip-hop to comic books to dance um so really really interesting conversations um and i think you know we'll all you all gain some valuable insights about appropriation from it it was a really good time talking to them too yes i agree all right so, so let's get started yeah without further ado let's get it going <laughs> catch up with y'all afterwards Cultural appropriation has been a hot topic in recent years. Debates about cultural appropriation often center around questions related to what it means to appropriate another's culture and whether we can apply the term to Black Americans and other people of color. Today, we tackle this topic through multiple lens by interviewing Professors Tamara Brown, Diara Robertson, and David Terry. Welcome, Professors. Um, so, uh, before we get start getting into the content, talking about cultural appropriation, we just always like to ask our guests to just tell us a little bit about yourselves, a little bit of background about yourself, and kind of why you study what you study. Okay, so, um, hi, I'm Tamara Brown. Um, I am an Associate Professor of History and Director of Women's Studies at Bowie State University. Um, it's real interesting how... I have come to this place. <laughs> um, I have um, a love for the performing arts um, and a love for history. Um, and I 
didn't know how I was going to be able to marry the two of those. And um, my undergraduate degree is not in history. <laughs> I do have a minor in dance, but I don't have a, an undergraduate degree in history. But when I was in graduate school, um, I just... I was doing research um, for my master's degree on Catherine Dunham. So I was finding a way to um, look um, at the performing arts and dance specifically in a scholarly way. Um, and I just gave into my love for history and went over to the history department for my PhD. And I met one David Taftieri there. <laughs> <laughs> sure, my name's uh, David Terry. Um, I teach history at Morgan State University in Baltimore. I also coordinate their master's program in museum studies and historical preservation. Uh, as an historian, I'm mainly interested in U.S. history. I focus uh, principally on Southern history, uh, especially the history of the urban South uh, for the uh, 19th and uh, first half of the 20th centuries. Um, I'm interested in the idea, the ideas and the theories uh, with which we grapple with the idea of, of how blacks uh, navigated the Jim Crow world, particularly what we have come to call the world within the world, so to speak. Um, interested uh, how black people saw themselves, uh, the resources that they were able to create for themselves to craft the resistance that they did craft. Um, in terms of what I contributed to this book, it was a blending of sorts uh, of my natural curiosity and the fact that I grew up a child of the 70s as something of a comic book nerd. <laughs> um, um, the histories of the civil rights and black resistance in the 60s are plentiful. So I, as a person who is only secondarily interested in the decade, uh, was looking for a different entry point. So the idea of comics as a uh, cultural artifact, as a way to uh, try to grapple with how people perceive their moment and where that moment might be leading them was interesting to me. So, Okay, my name is uh, D.R. Robertson. I'm Associate Professor of Government at Bowie State University and currently the chair of the department. Um, my interests uh, overlapped with uh, my primary interest was black politics. And during my, my dissertation research, I looked into the uh, focus partially on the Black Power Movement, specifically the role of culture and the Black Arts Movement in, uh, overlapping with the Black Power Movement, which led me to study people like Amiri Barak and a few other cultural figures during the, the 1970s and late 60s. So that, uh, and I consider myself a big fan of music, so that kind of uh, led to my interest in, in Dr. Brown's project. It's so awesome when you can take your passions, your interests, and turn them into a career. I think we say that every time, um, but it's just so awesome um, and fascinating how um, the the work comes together, the research comes together, and it's usually something that is uh, personal um, in nature. So thank you for sharing. Um, so this conversation is about cultural appropriation. Um, and we were just wondering if you could actually define it. Like, what is cultural appropriation and why should we be discussing it? Right. Um, appropriation, it's funny because when I, you know, when I uh, am just 
talking to just everyday people and things like that. Um, and they're asking me about my work and that type of stuff. And I'll say, oh, so-and-so-and-so, you know, appropriation, blah, blah, blah. And they always look at me and they say, oh, stealing. <laughs> And I'm like, well, yeah, it is a, it's a form of theft. Um, it's the idea of taking um, somebody else's culture, um, and it's 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 the dominant group taking from a marginalized or an oppressed uh, group, um, and they usually don't have permission. Um, they typically have little respect or knowledge about the culture um, from which they are um, appropriating. And um, they're just like a whole hmm, lot of um, nuances, et cetera, um, that go into that when you're talking about um, appropriating. Um, and the big thing in it is the fact that it's a hierarchical relationship and that you have um, a dominant group, um, often with money and the resources um, to... Um, take and define something from that um, marginalized or oppressed group. <clears throat> so what is the difference? Because I've, I've heard also culture, cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. What are the differences that our listeners should know between the two, the two terms? <laughs> um, well, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder, kind of. And I, I put that kind of there on purpose. Um, I always say that there's a very thin line um, between appropriation and appreciation. I remember um, one of the Supreme Court justices, like when they were talking about pornography, said, um, <laughs> I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> and I kind of look at it the, the same way. Um, I can just give you um, like some personal um, opinions that I have, and, and then maybe my two colleagues might um, have an example that they would like to share as well. Um, I can think of somebody like a Tina Marie, okay, in music history versus an Eminem. Uh, now, people can say, well, they, you know, what's the difference? And all I can say is it's a personal difference. Um, I like Tina Marie. I liked her music. Um, her circumstances were very similar in that Rick James was the person who, um, you know, was able to promote her and promote her, um, as part of, um, you know, um, part of his group and things like that, um, and help to promote her solo career. Um, and this is in forms of, uh, appropriation, um, you often have um, some member of that group that helps to um, introduce um, the entity, you know, into that culture. Um, and then with Eminem, you have um, Dr. Dre, you know, who who's responsible for him. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Tia Marie doesn't get on my nerves. Eminem does. Um, that's you know. That's the easiest way that I can say it. I think it also has to do with, you know, of uh, where hip hop came from and things like that versus um, I don't want to, you know, fans of R&B don't don't get on me. But, you know, um, versus versus R&B that does have that um, 
blue-eyed soul element in it. But um, I was, um, I think I was watching an episode of Unsung and they were doing Tina Marie and one of the uh, commentators um, on the episode said, well, black people liked Tina Marie because she knew her audience was a black audience and she wasn't trying to pander to a mainstream audience and they respected her for that. Now, I don't know, you know, um, that that could well be true. But like I said, um, it's sometimes a very thin line and it's often in the eyes of the beholder. Yeah, I would tend to agree with uh, Dr. Brown. Um, it's a relative sort of consideration and uh, I think appropriation versus appreciation uh, often stem from the same place, often involve the same actors, often take up the same sort of uh, content and contexts. Uh, cultural appropriation is an exercise of power. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's an ability of the empowered to claim primacy, to claim voice, to claim definitional authority over, quote unquote, the other. And with uh, resistance struggles, appropriation speaks mainly to areas of conflicts and strategies, uh, timetables, tactics, outcomes. When power is at play and people aren't speaking for themselves, uh, those who are at the center, those who are the community, if they don't have the uh, capacity to define their place, to define their direction, you know, if the cost of the assistance of other people is to surrender authority, uh, then you have appreciation becoming appropriation. Well, so it's, it's really interesting that you say that, and I'm happy you talked about power because uh, cultural appropriation is a term that's used often now, you know, black Twitter, they, you know, they kind of go in and we'll, I'll see kind of rebuttals to uh, arguments about cultural appropriation where they're like, black people do it too. Black people do it too. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really um, appreciate you talking about the role that power plays in appreciation versus appropriation. Um, and it actually gets into our next question because while I was reading um, some of the articles, specifically um, the So You Think You Can Dance or chapter So You Think You Can Dance, you know, it actually made me think about the difference between cultural exchange and cultural appropriation, which is a term um, or a distinction that you make in your article, um, Dr. Brown. Um, so on that topic, uh, we would like to hear more about each of your chapters in Soul Thieves. Um, it, uh, the book covers uh, many different genres uh, related to Black artistry. And so, can you know, you talk a little bit more about your work for our listeners? Okay, well, great. Um, my co-editor um, is Baruti Capano, and um, he is uh, a communications professor um, at Morgan State University, and he actually came up with the title um, of Soul Thieves. And it came from um, Henry Highland Garnett's um, in his address to the slaves. And um, in it, he says, you should use the same manner of resistance as would have been just in our ancestors when the bloody footprints of the first remorseless soul thief was placed upon the shores of our fatherland. And so just as uh, people took our bodies 
we were looking at this volume as people taking another form um, of people of the diaspora. And in this case, the actual soul, which permeates into everything that we do. Um, and we looked at popular culture in particular. There's an interesting story of how um, <laughs> the ideas behind this came to be. So maybe if we have time later, I, I could, I'll go into that. Um, but we looked at not only, we looked at, at not only um, appropriation, but we also looked at commodification um, as well as misrepresentation. Um, because in some of the um, uh, articles, um, especially like with the fashion and, and beauty with Abena Lewis Moon and Kimberly Brown, um, they are looking at ways that um, people of African descent sometimes become their worst enemy, um, especially in the beauty ideals where Kimberly Brown is looking um, at uh, images of black women in black um, popular and fashion magazines um, of the 20th century um, before Essence. <laughs> um, and so uh, in some cases, you know, we are um, adopting those European standards of beauty. And in other uh, instances, we are um, fighting um, those uh, images into something that's more culturally appropriate. Um, also, again, as you mentioned, um, we look at a variety of things, um, sports, um, music, television, film, um, and we were just trying to see, you know, this idea, as uh, Dr. Terry was talking about, um, when people cannot control um, their own creativity, because Black people create. Black people um, have been a part of American popular culture and actually drive American popular culture. Um, and um, but are not always credited with it, as in the as is the case with a lot of things in this particular country. Um, and so we wanted to look at and define and present um, these areas that uh, people of African descent have had a great impact, but also some of the problems that have been attached to them as well. And so we hope that we cover um, that, not for everything, but in the things that we do present in the volume. Okay, so if we want to kind of go into some of the work, uh, specifically the articles of Dr. Robertson, um, potentially? That's fine, yes. I uh, continue with the theme. I try to focus uh, more so with music, particularly uh, the notion of hip-hop and its, its role as a, a resistance or protest dynamic in contemporary culture. Um, I think one thing that's interesting, particular, particularly in terms of hip-hop, is this, and, and as I say this personally, I'm struggling with a, a generational growth uh, in terms of how things are changing uh, because it seems as though the most recent generation of hip-hop is, is uh, becoming more difficult to relate uh, to this uh, earlier, Dr. Brown mentioned Eminem and the more recent incarnation of Eminem is somebody by the name of Post Malone who apparently has one of the top albums 
on the hip hop charts uh, or Billboard charts rather, and it seems as though, in my view, this these this is um, appropriation situation in the sense that, as we mentioned, the topic of power earlier. There's this selective dynamic in, that, in terms of the broader uh, market, drifting towards uh, majority artists, and I think we still witness that today in terms of sales, uh, in terms of the, the power dynamic. But I, the reason I mentioned the generational thing is that I do think that there's been this revelation in recent years of, of a newer artist not really being too concerned about, I guess you could say, the history or the foundations of, uh, of hip-hop. There's been a string of artists, uh, I like to call them the littles, that, that jokingly say, I don't, you know, I don't know or care about who Tupac is and, and things of this nature. So I'm not sure if that's a generational thing. But in terms of appropriation, I think the reason I mentioned Post Malone is that as a contemporary example, I think that's a reflection of more the, the appropriation context within the power dynamic in terms of the, the market still being attracted to people uh, of the majority lean when it comes to hip-hop or music. So that, that, that's just more or less a contemporary example in terms of the themes that I try to look at in my chapter. I looked at the relationships between politics and, and uh, culture and hip-hop and how there was a, a, a apparent decline uh, over the years, you know, evolving from the period of maybe the 1980s when you had the the public enemy type of groups and moving through time and how there seemed to be a decline in the conscious element of uh, of hip-hop. And I still think that to a certain degree outside of quote-unquote underground artists that there there is a, a more or less decline in that today. So those are some of the general things that I tried to look at and flush out in my, my essay. Mm. So, yeah, a quick follow-up question to that. Um, I know when the chapter was written uh, at the time, I remember one of the things that you mentioned in the chapter was kind of the positioning of hip-hop during the time. Uh, like, I think it was, like, number three behind country and rock. Um, and I, today, I believe, it, I recently I saw maybe within the past few months that it has moved up to be number one. Um, as far as the, where it's at musically and people consuming it and stuff like that, ahead of rock, ahead of country music. Even with that being said, right, and I also, when thinking about this and thinking about appropriation and, and yet people like Eminem and Macklemore, et cetera, even Post Malone, who's also, weird, interestingly enough, seems to like try to distance himself away from hip hop in many instances too. Um, and so we see that hip hop is being commodified, uh, being digested and consumed at a much higher rate than it was just four or five years ago. Um, so how do you think when we talk about appropriation and stuff like that, is there is there a fine line between it? Because also like some of the top hip hop artists, um, and I remember in the chapter you talk about like people who are conscious or socio-politically engaged, right? And so we see people like the Kendrick Lamars who are, you know, transcending a lot at the top of the game, not really on the same level as the littles, right? The littles who seem to have their own kind of following in base, but those who are kind of more mainstream also still have that kind of socio-political message within uh, their music and their lyrics and stuff like that. So is it, I'm trying to be on the fence or teeter line. Is it, are we feeling like it's being commodified in a way that we're being appropriated? Is it appreciation? Just curious as far as how you're thinking through this. 
this current time? Um, I think I think it's a great area, as Dr. Brown was mentioning earlier. But it's also, I think, uh, hip-hop and, you know, the role of African-Americans or Blacks in culture in the, in the United States, uh, and you can even make an argument globally, is unique because it seems like Blacks have been the general cultural trendsetter. And in terms of uh, Black music as a whole, it's been incorporated in so many elements. It's, I, I don't know if you can define, a, a, you know, have a fine line between genres as much as it before in the sense that even broader artists are incorporating hip-hop elements. And um, I don't believe that uh, some, like Post Malone, I find is an interesting case because there's elements of him, like these moments where he wants to almost, He's, he's mocking hip hop with the gold teeth and the and the and the cornrows, uh, but at the same time, you know, he wants to be a, a rock starish type of a figure. But he's obviously, you know, taking from a sort of uh, hip hop base. Yeah. Um, to me, that seems more more like a, a appropriation because I think in traditionally with majority artists that that do. Uh, or practice more traditional black forms of music, I think there are times when you can tell the people that come across as enthusiasts and general appreciation for the culture uh, and those who seem as though they're, they're just employing it as a, uh, a, a tool or a tactic or a marketing tool to increase their financial position. And I just, I think in the case of people like Post Malone, I view that more of, uh, I'm going to use this image, I'm going to have gold teeth, and I'm going to rape my hair so I can have a greater success, you know, as opposed to, uh, I do think people like Mac Laboa are a little more authentic, uh, or even people like Mac Miller, uh, you know, who, who, who operate in the, the traditional, uh, as we used to use the term, backpack uh, hip-hop, tradition where they seem to be enthusiastic and respect the culture to a certain degree, but it is a fine line, and I don't think that you can easily demarcate those who are, who are doing appreciation versus appropriation because of the influence of hip-hop. I mean, Ariana Grande is going to rap a little bit in her song, uh, so it's, 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 a, it's an interesting context today in terms of the influence of hip-hop in general or black music culture in general. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think it's difficult to, to, to market the two cleanly. Okay, Dr. Terry, can we hear more about, you know, the history and the evolution of comics um, and black superheroes or the lack thereof? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. So, um, specifically, um, I was trying to understand what I call the integration era, or what you might call the implementation of integration era, which is to say, at some point in the 20th century, at least from the mainstream perspective, all of the underlying structures of racial segregation and inequality had been addressed particularly by federal legislation. And there was a period to see these things put to work and allow these things, uh, again, from that perspective, to have their impact. 
Uh, I define this period roughly from 1966, which is to say after the uh, major civil rights and voting rights legislation and ending at the uh, election and inauguration of Ronald Reagan, which uh, most would agree saw a tremendous and pointed effort to reverse much of what uh, the civil rights movement was supposedly about. To understand that time period, again, 66 to 1980, I looked at comic books as a cultural artifact, as a sort of chronological effort to test people's opinions sort of real time about the changes that were undergoing. Um, I focused specifically on Marvel comics just for continuity. And uh, I do so with the understanding that uh, at that point in time, comics, uh, mainstream comics, superhero comics, were largely the voice and instrument of white male middle-class American creators. These were the people who were largely staffing the comic book production and who were the target audience whose, in other words, the consumers whose responses drove the market, drove the direction of creation. So uh, in that sense, um, by looking at superhero comics from the 1960s, the 1980s, not just their content in terms of uh, what they did and uh, what they said in their speech bubbles, but also uh, if you're not familiar with comic books uh, at that point in time, and perhaps even still, I'm not sure, but most comics um, thrived off of reader feedback. They were filled with two or three pages, every issue of letters to the editor, you might call it, where uh, uh, their readers would respond to issues uh, and you can get a real sense of what people are thinking in terms of their ability to see the comics as a mirror for modern American life. Uh, and there are also trade magazines and, and other sort of uh, industry-related publications that I was able to access to get a sense of what uh, the comic creation, comic consumption audience was thinking about the world in which they were living as that world was interpreted. Uh, by comic books. Uh, I was interested in um, how these, again, predominantly white-oriented voices interpret the changes of the integration era. Uh, uh, how did they speak through particularly the blackness that they constructed, uh, the advent of black comic book characters, superheroes, uh, comes about in this time. So the blackness they constructed in terms of the characters, the blackness they constructed in terms of the spaces where these characters existed and the things that these characters did and the circumstances uh, that uh, the black superheroes as well as the other black non-superhero or secondary characters that were also created. Um, uh, how did this relay the white male perspective on the changes uh, that had come? You know, when I uh, first constructed this piece, which if you were to look at my CV, this, this is the one that stands out as not like anything else I had to have done. And the uh, editors, uh, particularly Professor Brown, uh, who I have uh, known since graduate school and probably remembered something of my um, lingering comic book nerddoms in my early 20s when we first met, uh, approached me about contributing uh, this piece. But when I first wrote this piece, I was a bit intimidated that you know, comic books are so esoteric uh, in terms of a community that I, I didn't think 
uh, all the nuances that I was interested in conveying would be conveyed. But thanks, you know, in the last eight or nine years to the uh, proliferation of not just comic superhero movies, but particularly black characters, you know. Uh, so uh, it is a coincidence, but a happy coincidence that the main black characters whose development and use uh, and impact that I follow in my piece, Black Panther, Falcon, uh, Storm of the X-Men, Luke Cage, uh, these are the people I write about because those were the, if you will, stars of uh, comic books in terms of black characters for the period that I'm concerned with. So um, in the end, I'm, I'm grappling with the question and, and really coming to the conclusion that across this period, what began as an enthusiasm uh, for integration, uh, that the civil rights movement might be sort of uh, seen as separate and apart from the underlying and much longer term black struggle that produced that movement. You know, it, the civil rights movement emerged from that struggle when outsiders, when uh, white citizens, white politicians, white business people began to embrace the goals and aims of that movement. And we see an enthusiasm for that type of social justice advocacy in the comic books of the 60s and into the early 70s. But slowly, just as in the real world, and certainly by the time uh, Reagan takes his oath of office, white people, uh, even those who would present themselves as liberal and open-minded, those who were the comic book creator class, as well as many of those who were the readers of comic books, seem perfectly willing to set the enduring problem of race aside and pretend it doesn't exist or repackage it as some other uh, uh, necessary uh, fact of American life. And we see literally uh, black people in their struggle left to themselves and their own devices all over again. So, Yeah, I thought the article uh, was very interesting in how you talked about Storm as a transition from like the focus on, uh, you talked about how characters the, of the past had a particular worldview that was often informed by, um, uh, because it was like situated in like a particular context, like neighborhood context, like sure. the ghetto, and how Storm was a transition and beyond, you know, being from Africa or being brown face, you yeah. know, she wasn't necessarily situated as a black woman. And I also find it interesting that that character, even in the movie, recently um, there's been actually a lot of controversy because people have been some comic book fans have been upset because increasingly um, the character has been portrayed uh, by uh, mixed race individuals and um, the latest uh, Alexandria ship who is very much like yes, my mom is white, get over it uh, type thing. And so there are a lot of people that have uh, been kind of upset about that, but it's interesting that that particular character has not just transitioned. They wasn't situated as black, but also is transitioning to like, you know, kind of, yeah, even even in, in a portrayal of a lighter skin character. I thought that sure, was sure, sure. So, and she's the, in terms of the main characters whose development and use I explore in this piece. She's really the last to come on the scene in the in the middle 1970s. So in that way, she is both, she speaks both to, if you um, are familiar with the history of the 1970s, she speaks both to 
the sort of furtherance and even fulfillment, if you will, of uh, some aspects of civil rights, certainly of, of black power, uh, but also the notion of the women's movement and, uh, if you will, affirmative action policies moving to beyond just uh, the legacies, addressing the legacies of, of centuries of anti-black racism to much more of uh, what became a buzzword at the time, diversity, right? So if in the, if in, if the civil rights movement from uh, white Americans' perspectives and even some, uh, uh, many of the black leadership class, if you will, was about integration, you know, proximity, if you will, as opposed to addressing inequality, if, if, the civil rights movement was about that. By the time you get to the mid to late 70s, when Storm is created as a character, uh, uh, the buzzword has become diversity, right? So this notion that uh, if black people have a problem, then they are just one of many who have common sort of problems. So there is an effort to uh, create a broader field of concern, but ultimately in pursuit of that broader field, uh, the uh, the necessary focus on on uh, issues related to uh, African Americans is sort of dropped in place. They're not really completed or uh, brought to a conclusion so much as they uh, are made to compete with sort of other issues. Uh, Storm is very much created as a person of color, but she's uh, created uh, uh, in the immigrant mold, someone not born in the United States. Uh, very much a departure uh, from. Uh, approaches to other characters. Um, for example, the first African, the first person of color to be a major superhero in the Marvel Universe was Black Panther, who of course is from the fictional nation of uh, Wakanda. But his immigrant status is, is, is rarely explored prior to the uh, 1970s. Um, in fact, uh, the, the degree to which he has, um, uh, he has come to uh, uh, be acculturated it in Western ways is really what sort of is, is held up uh, when issues of his sort of personal uh, character is concerned. So for Storm to be held up as something other than black and for Storm to be celebrated and, and sort of uh, or at least presented as uh, remarkable for the things about her blackness that are unlike anything else traditionally associated with black was a problem for many readers then, if you read the letters to the editor, and in many ways has continued to um, be a context with which that character is, is, is perceived. So what what are your, uh, really quick question, what are your thoughts about how things are being viewed now? Again, similar to Dr. Robertson's piece and a lot of pieces, right? A lot of this stuff was just, I feel like the, the things you wrote were just before this kind of explosion of things like hip-hop and then of course what we see today uh when it comes to black comic book representation being represented now on tv and on film like black panther which was a, a huge success but we're also seeing things like the netflix series luke cage we're also seeing this uh the show on uh, black lightning as well that's a regular television and stuff like that and also the integration within black characters uh black writers i know like with spider-man there was conversations about a new character like miles morales and the new mm. iron man being uh, a young woman of color um, Tanahashi Coates writing the one of the more recent um, arcs of Black Panther as well. So that's also like black writers trying to contribute to this conversation of, of black representation within the comic book world. So what would be your kind of your thoughts on the more contemporary aspects of the what we're seeing within black superheroes today kind of versus what we saw when you centered your piece around right after the civil rights uh, movement? Sure, sure, sure. Well, um, 
I would my my first reaction to that question is that what we see in terms of uh, how these things are being presented, uh, I believe his future historians will see this as part of the broader effort, if you will, uh, to at least to appear to be uh, embracing uh, wider audiences and speaking to uh, uh, communities that are, are, are uh, less than represented, if you will. Um, now, uh, is that an effort of commoditization? Um, is it sort of crass marketing? Or is it sort of sincere uh, efforts to um, approach that, that topic? And I think there is a difference between uh, other media, uh, movies and television, and the print media of comic books, because uh, although I'm not as in tune to the modern comic book reading scene, I have two teenagers and uh, uh, they read some, but not as much as sort of certainly I did when I was a, a young boy. But suffice it to say, um, even uh, Coates, as uh, uh, successful and celebrated as his career has been, as he has attempted to broaden, for example, uh, the number of publications, the number of titles that deal with Black Panther and or Wakanda related uh, issues, the, the public that buys comic books, not goes to movies or watches television, but buys comic books, is still predominantly white and male. And uh, many of uh, the market, it seems, just as it did in the 70s and 80s, will only support so many Black-centered titles, mm. uh, not because uh, they are over, overly concerned with uh, ideas that we might uh, say are related to Blackness, but just because the uh, face of the character is uh, is Black, and, and the same would go gender-wise. Uh, uh, as, as much as uh, we might say strides have been making uh, made in, in making uh, uh, comics more gender sensitive and more sensitive of, of uh, sexual orientations. They, the comics that sell the most, the comics, the characters that get multiple titles and have those titles sustained, uh, even sometimes despite readership numbers, have those titles sustained are pr principally comics which are white male centered. So um, I think there is a great difference in regard to the different platforms, the media platforms, but in terms of the comic book industry itself, um, it's still as difficult as it was before in many ways for black creators to uh, get uh, a relative a, a position uh, uh, to create what they want relative to uh, what they have been able to prove as a group they're able to produce. And it's still difficult for uh, black characters to have uh, sustained runs um, uh, in terms of their titles uh existing uh, for more than a few a few issues yeah that was awesome um i didn't know if you had um anything you wanted to add uh dr brown i know as i was reading your article one thing that uh, stuck out to me you used this phrase called purposeful dishonesty uh when you talked about appropriation and particularly when it came to um, the origins of black dance um especially when um popular white culture tried to appropriate it. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit more about your chapter? Sure. Um, I do want to say um, <clears throat> that I haven't checked the um, statistics on Amazon lately, but um, 
Dr. Robertson's and Dr. Terry's chapters because, you know, people don't always buy the entire work now and they can download chapters. They were um, two of the three most downloaded chapters um, uh, on Amazon from the book. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, this, I was sitting here listening to them. I mean, I've obviously read um, their pieces. Um, I know them. I know their research. Um, but I was still riveted <laughs> as you all were talking and you know how I am. So I, I, I did my best not to, you know, make my own commentary <laughs> as you were, as you were going on about, about your wonderful research. That's part of this work. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, that purposeful dishonesty, uh, <laughs> That goes along with the things that we were talking about, um, specifically with this idea that we present throughout the volume of um, cultural capital and the idea that there is a money-making incentive with popular culture. Black people generally uh, supply the creativity and mainstream America and the people in charge of that, the money folks, trying to be politically correct, um, reap the monetary benefits from it. Um, and we see this over and over um, in the subjects that are discussed um, uh, throughout the work. Um, I think you may be talking about with swing dance in particular and um, the Lindy Hop and how the actor that played the Tin Man in the original uh, Wizard of Oz uh, attempted to say that he was the person who created the dance. <laughs> he was not. <laughs> uh, the dance was created um, at the Savoy um, Harlem nightclub. Um, and just as the same things that we're talking about today, um, back in the 1920s, uh, when the club opens, um, Norma Miller, who's a very famous, well, she's famous in the dance world, um, but not famous um, like she really should be. Um, she talks about uh, how, like with swing dance in particular, they tried to keep their rhythms very, very fast um, because you had white people who were going to the clubs at that time. Um, you know, And she said they wanted to keep those rhythms fast. They wanted to keep those dance steps fast so that others couldn't steal them. And um, today, um, in thinking about the work and in thinking about maybe some other areas of research that um, I, I, I might want to document, um, there is this idea of, you know, adopt and adapt um, this, this idea of so the supposing melding of cultures, um, but they still exist in that power dynamic that we talked about in the beginning. And in the United States of America, for example, we have this idea of, you know, that you learned from elementary school of this melting pot, because we have this idea of assimilation, assimilating into the mainstream culture um, so that you don't have a, plural, a pluralistic society where different cultures, you know, maintain some of that authenticity um, that makes them, you know, who and what they are. Um, and that idea of assimilating, it's a, it's a power. It's again, it's this power struggle, this power dynamic 
because if you assimilate into this larger, broader society, then you um, become to a certain extent that image that um, the powers that be <laughs> uh, want to portray. So I titled my piece, So You Think You Can Dance. Okay. I watch the show. I'm a dancer. <laughs> um, well, my evil twin is. Anyway, um, so I watched the show. And um, overall, you know, because I struggle with this, um, there are very few outlets and opportunities um, for dancers in general and for people of color in dance specifically. Um, so I think the show is good in that it helps to uh, generate an audience for dance. Um, and I remember reading several years ago, um, like they had this job listings thing and they had dancer down as a job that would be obsolete. Now, I'm talking about a trained dancer, <laughs> not um, an exotic dancer. I'm not judging, but I'm just saying, okay? So, um, and I thought that that was horrible, you know, as somebody um, who, who has enjoyed the field my entire life. Um, and who still, you know, dabbles in it. And I was like, wow. And um, so I think that it's a good platform. Um, Jennifer Lopez has a new show out, World of Dance. I think all these things are good platforms to broaden the audience and keep dance viable. Um, because dance and music and these other uh, parts of popular culture, that's what defines a people. Um, <clears throat> and... Um, so I do, I do uh, title uh, my portion of the work that. Um, I talked about at the um, uh, one part um, in, in my submission, I talked about um, <clears throat> a gentleman on So You Think You Can Dance in one of the very first seasons, and he was a hip hop dancer. And the judges um, often just, oh, they just, um, you know, had such horrible things to say about him because he wasn't trained in the other dance forms. Typically, um, you have to be a contemporary dancer to really make it far. Now, they they have had some hip-hop dancers win the competition because they started to build it as America's favorite dancer. <laughs> and so it's this idea of, you know, you have to um, be able to translate um uh, your dance into these various styles and things like that and be able to pick those up. <clears throat> and so people who train um, in, in all these different forms, they do have an advantage. You see that every season. Um, they do have an advantage. But they just um, they just kept going in, going in, going in. And if you had, um, if the judges picked you, um, uh, you know, to be sent home that week, then you had to basically dance for your life. And um, I talked about how he was dancing for his life and, you know, how some of the judges were critiquing him. Some of the judges who actually work as choreographers and they couldn't do <laughs> the stuff that he was doing. I don't even think that they could imagine doing the stuff that, that he was doing and translating his particular dance style into choreography for the stage of, you know, many of the pop artists or or whomever. That, that they choreographed for. And so that was very interesting to me. Also, um, MTV had um, America's Best Dance Crew. 
and um, the Jabberwockies won over a group from Boston um, called Status Quo. And Status Quo, oh, they had heart and they had talent. I don't think any of these uh, young men had ever, you know, stuck a toe in anybody's dance studio. Um, their studio, you know, was where they lived, you know, outside. Okay. And the things that they came up with um, uh, on that season, I thought were incredible. Now, I'm not taking anything away from um, the Jabberwockies because the Jabberwockies won. I know that they had a residency in Las Vegas. Um, they had commercial deals and things like this uh, that they got from um, the notoriety from winning the show, et cetera. But when you would go online to um, see the comments that people were um, writing about them, and this goes back to some of the things that Dr. Robertson was saying about hip-hop music, because this was hip-hop dance. So the Jabberwockies, um, many of them had Asian-American background. And um, in interviews, they were talking about this idea of assimilation. You know, they were talking about, oh, well, yes, we have these backgrounds, but we're American now. Now, interestingly enough, the way that they translated um, their lives into being American was through hip hop and hip hop came from where it came from the South Bronx with uh, black folk and uh, Latinos. <laughs> okay. Um, and so they were relating this, this idea of being American. Um, and there was another group that was on that season. They were called Kaba Modern and they were an Asian group as well. And some of the fans um, were arguing that, the judges put status quo in the finals so that you wouldn't have a final with two Asian American dance crews. Now, these are supposedly fans of hip hop, supposedly fans of hip hop dance, and they were citing things like reverse racism and all this other kind of stuff. I found that to be quite interesting as well as problematic as you know, also. Um, now we were talking about things like um, cultural appreciation and that type of stuff. Now, in hip-hop dance, a big component um, would be the martial arts films of the 1970s. Um, and so those early, you know, crews and those early dancers, they did get um, some of their, you know, moves and things from that type of um, um, uh, popular cultural form. So it, I find it really interesting, um, this dynamic um, that happens um when um, race becomes involved um, and the, again, that adaption, that adoption, um, the fusion um, that happens because people weren't necessarily, um, a lot of people did not denigrate um, uh, the Jabberwockies for winning, um, but they did talk about um, um, status quo and the lack of opportunities that status quo had versus you know, some of the other groups and how they were able to get that far and that their representation was not, was like a non-theatrical type of representation of real kind of street hip hop dance. Again, very interesting. Um, and then another, I know we've um, taken up a lot of time, so I just wanted to mention another um, thing that I explore, um, which is stepping. Um, stepping in the... Um, form of African-American um, Greek sororities and fraternities. And um, in this area, in um, we call it the DMV, 
So it's the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia. Um, in our high schools, we actually have step teams in many of the high schools, and they have these large competitions. Um, the step teams were formed typically by, you know, members of um, Black Greek sororities and fraternities in many of the pockets um, of, I know, in Northern Virginia, um, where you don't have... Um, um, a large demographic of African-Americans. And so like that small minority of black kids that were in that school, you know, they wanted to do something to help them um, in that um, environment that they were in, et cetera. So they formed these teams. Well, of course, black culture is popular. It always has been. And so um, you have all these other um, ethnicities and everything that started to join these teams. Um, and they didn't join it because of the history of where stepping came from and how it's related to the organizations and things like that. They joined it because it was what? It was cool. Okay. Cause there's that big cool factor that is through black popular culture as well. <clears throat> so I say, you know, this is a, a high school um, thing that happens around here, but of course, you know, any college campus, um, you will have, um, a competition and, um, in, 2010, I believe it was, um, it was the Sprite National Competition and a white sorority from, I believe it was the University of Arkansas, won. <laughs> and there was a huge controversy about that. Um, and it just exemplifies a lot of the things that we do have in the book um, in that they had learned this on their campus because they had a Greek unity night. So with the idea of sharing, okay, <laughs> um, the uh, black sororities, you know, taught them some, some of their steps probably, or taught them, you know, how to create a step. Um, and they thought that they, you know, could, were good enough to make it to this national competition, and they were. Um, and now, I, let, me, let me clarify that. Um, there has to be, um, you know, there's the, the fascination factor. Um, Black audiences are often flattered um, when somebody else, um, the other, um, comes and, you know, performs really well in that style, or whatever that may be. Um, they are often flattered. Um, and that's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It's a good thing. Again, we talk about this idea of appreciation. It's a bad thing because <clears throat> we often, we just give our culture away. <laughs> we do. We do, and that's where we talk about this idea of misrepresentation, um, the authentic factor of it, because if a person like Ray Bolger, you know, says, oh, I invented the Lindy Hop, <laughs> you know, completely out of context, but it goes down because it is written down, um, and it goes down as the historical record, that is a problem. Um, and I don't know, um, I don't know, especially like with the internet and things, because now, of course, you don't have to, it's like the um, Cotton Club in the, you know, in the 1920s. You can go there, you can watch these black people perform, et cetera, et cetera. You don't need to sit next to them because they're not allowed in the audience. They're the performers and the staff. And the internet's, uh, you know, very similar in that, okay, well, you can become a voyeur and you can, you know, get all these aspects of um, African-American popular culture and you can appropriate them and you can do whatever and you can be Kylie Jenner and you can become, you know, a billionaire. You can keep that in there. <laughs> 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 but, <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, these are um, these are just um, some of the things that we address. Um, I. I know that we're still looking for answers. I know that this has encouraged me to um, continue looking for answers. Um, I also wanted to uh, thank both of you for, for reading the book. <laughs> um, this is the first interview that we've had about it. We appreciate it. We appreciate the, the content in the book and you guys taking out the time to come speak with us about, uh, you know, soul thieves. I think it's a really important topic, especially in the midst of everything that's going on today uh, with just the kind of just mass emergence of black popular culture. And a lot more of these conversations are being had, you know, within the academic settings, but also just within the general public as well and at people's dinners tables as far as a lot of the topics we talk about, definitely with hip hop, definitely with comic books, definitely with things like dance and music and culture as well. Uh, we feel like they're all very important, very important topics. And we appreciate you all with, you know, your insights and, and having the academic rigor to research and write about this. And, you know, we understand that the world of academia is, isn't always the most welcoming place to content focused on people of color uh, for a lot of reasons. So we definitely appreciate all that you do. With that being said, is there any place where people can find you? Are, are you all on social media at all? Email websites <laughs> if people wanted to contact you? I'm not really on social media. Okay, um, <laughs> I mean, they can contact. How did you all find us anyway? I mean, they can contact me if they would like. Um, they can contact me through my Bowie State um, uh, email address. I do answer as long as it's, you know, something serious. Okay. I do answer. No worries. <laughs> I can say that I, um, if you want to check out any of these dances, um, definitely Google them because I came across some interesting, like historical dance videos that were related to your articles. So mm -hmm. yeah, that was really good. Well, I do, um, like if I do presentations at conferences, I'll bring the video footage. <laughs> nice. Yeah. One of the areas that I really liked, um, but I, I, you know, didn't have time was the soul train part. I, you know, that was a part of my youth. Um, I'm sure Dr. Terry and Dr. Robertson have their soul train stories as well. Um, but that was, <laughs> that's one of my favorite um, parts of the work. And I would be remiss if I did not um, acknowledge um, Dr. Uhura Williams. Um, he was uh, one of the editors of the series um, at Palgrave, at he along with Peniel Joseph. Um, initially it was, um, Dr. Joseph and Manning Marable before he passed. And then Dr. Williams um, came along and he was the one, because he remembered my interest um, in popular culture. And so he was the one that helped get this book out. So I do have to always thank him for that. All right, any closing words from, from Dr. Terry or Dr. Robertson? No, just uh, appreciate the time and the opportunity. No, again, just thank you for the opportunity. Hey, Dessa, what do you think about our guests coming on to talk about Soul Thieves? How do you um, I thought it was I thought it was really good. Like, so they all focused on um, different aspects of black artistry. And so it was interesting just to have a conversation about all three of them, like the references that they made, especially, you know, related to So You Think You Can Dance, you know, America Best, America's Best Dance Crew, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. even the conversation about Storm. It was all so interesting i can't i can't believe yeah. that in someone's work they get to yeah that's that. yeah that's cool that you know again we've said this plenty of times on this podcast that when you there is 
you know, areas of that you, or that interest you specifically, you can do in academia. And, and we're bringing tons and tons of people on here who are examples of that. So that was pretty cool. And yeah, I, might switch my, I might switch my research interest to food because I really like food. So maybe <laughs> I can like eat a bunch of stuff. You know, eat a bunch of stuff and write review blog. I mean, you can always do a blog on that. We do some episodes. Yeah. We haven't we have did episode on anything food related, have we? No, we haven't. That'll be a good one. Maybe a nutritionist, a dietitian, or or just, you know, food in general. Uh, yeah. I know somebody's probably doing research on culture and foods, which would probably be cool. So, yeah, well, that's a good one. Yes, well, you know, the that. Kardashians be trying to culturally appropriate uh, Southern food. They always they always like cooking like fried chicken and like macaroni and cheese and like taking Instagram photos of it to show how down they are. Like They stop. are sick. <laughs> we, <laughs> we know that food has no soul in it. <laughs> soul, babe. No, no soul, it no, right. no soul and no seasoning. So don't even try to fool <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, man! What was your take? What was your take on it? Oh, I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed. I mean, the book we only covered. You know, the the guests we had on. Um, you know, only with just three chapters in the book, and I think there's about ten or eleven chapters that all dive into different aspects of it. So, you know, we kind of hit the tip of the iceberg with it. But you know, like she said, um, Dr. Terry and Dr. Robertson's their ta- their chapters were some of the most downloaded. Uh, I mean, it makes sense dealing with comic books and dealing with um, hip hop. You know, uh, mm-hmm. we talk about appropriation, but dance as well. When she talked about the Jabberwockies, I remember that season. I was all into it uh, against status quo. Status quo, they were the kids, the black guys, right, who were doing like the arm breaking kind of moves, I think. Or was yeah. that a different season? Um, uh, I, I actually, no, I, I can't recall. I just remember I Jabberwockies. They, they took over everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jabberwockies like, was everywhere. Yeah. That was a fun season. Uh, but yeah, beyond that stepping and all that kind of stuff, you know, it was really it was really good and really interesting. And and how, like I said, in the, in the interview, they kind of wrote a lot of this stuff before this wave of mass blackness in popular culture and media. Um, mm-hmm. So it was good to get their take on how they feel about what's going on now. Uh, more more present take on that, too. Um, so what what did you think about, you know, like the conversation about like whether appropriation can work the other way around? Um, what would you take on that? I think that's important, uh, uh, you know, take on that, because it's similar to when we hear things like uh, reverse racism. Right. Uh, I think the part they highlighted was that power plays a, a, a integral role as far as appropriation as well in all these dynamics, especially dealing with race and all the other isms we talk about in this country. Um, and so. Can it happen the other way around? Um, of course, cultures share and influence one another. Uh, but predominantly in this country, I think most of the culture has been taken and stolen from oppressed peoples. And we see that in a lot of other ways. So that power dynamic of, oh, what are we taking from the majority and what can happen? Uh, you know, I think um, I think it's different. I don't think it's appropriating <laughs> because we mm-hmm. the power as far as how we can use it or not use it or or claim it and commodify it and, and make it consumable, uh, we just don't have that, right, compared to the majority who has the power to actually take something from your culture and say it's ours or take credit for it and make money off it or do whatever. Um, that's a completely different ballgame. And I think that's a key component. So, so yeah. How about you? What do you think about so- that? Uh, no, I was about actually about to say what well, you said, uh, take credit for it. And I think that is my biggest thing. And I think when we talk about like, how can we fix the issue? Because I, I do like cultural exchanges. I, I think it's a great thing, but I don't ever 
want to look at an online uh, magazine article or get on Twitter in some large uh, popular culture uh, forum, such as like Vogue or something like that, is attributing something that is uniquely black to mm-hmm. others. Don't do that. It kind of makes me think of our conversation with uh, Professor Onwachi Willig and Professor Green mm-hmm. um, about hair and how braids... Um, were attributed to, uh, what do you call that? Bo Derek Grace or something like <laughs> yeah. that. And how it was reinvented by Kylie Jenner or whatnot. Like, no, don't do that because those same braids um, can get us fired, mm-hmm. but get you celebrated. So mm-hmm. I think it is more about acknowledging the origins of certain things and giving credit where credit is due. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and even when they talked about like different hip hop, you know, white hip hop artists, I think this whole thing of people like Macklemore and them and even Eminem, they give credit like, hey, hip hop wasn't created by white folk. They pay homage to the black predecessors. Right. Hey, this is an art form that I appreciate. I love I use, but it's not mine. Um, and they and usually they're pretty careful as far as recognizing that. I think this is why they're more so widely accepted in that particular culture, in that realm, because it's not like I'm taking it and claiming it as mine and, and I'm reinventing it in this way. While, yes, there's been a lot of backlash for somebody like Post Malone, who has clearly used hip hop to propel himself to where he is today, but always wants to distance distance himself from hip hop and talk about hip hop artists and lyrics and how people don't really rap and all this other kind of stuff. But yet all your beats and all the lyrics and the people, the features you have are hip hop based. Um, so, it, you know, paying attention to the, how people are being received and, and promoted in a lot of different ways is, is interesting, too, when they had that whole conversation about being appropriated. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think it's an important topic to talk about because, like I said, it has been a buzzword uh, on social media for the last uh, few years. Mm-hmm. And it was just something I wanted to, you know, talk about. And like I said, I'm just really happy uh, the conversation about power dynamics and why are we not going to turn cultural appropriation to reverse racism. Yeah, we're not <laughs> like about, you just said. Yeah, doing that. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it's like even during the interview, I was thinking about how where we are today and we see this mass emergence of black popular culture and pretty much everywhere you turn from music to TV to uh, movies, just everything. Um, and a part of it is like within the community, it's just like a mass amount of celebration and we appreciate what's going on. But then in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking like, mm, is this happening for the right reasons, right? Is it here to stay because the world has finally realized like blacks need more representation or on the flip side, when we see the success of things like Black Panther, right? Uh, making a billion dollars. Is it like, oh, well, this is a moneymaker for us now. We're going to just continue to do it until it stops making us money and then we won't care for it as much. Um, and so that's the kind of weird limbo. We do have, you know, the black directors and the black writers and the actors and the filmmakers all incorporating this. But it's like the big seat at the table. Are we there yet uh, where it's going to sustain? Yeah. And I feel like those people are like, oh, this is making us money. One movie, billion dollars. OK, let's do it again. Let's do it again. But what happens if it just brings us 50 million dollars? You know, uh, will we see another one? Um, so it's like appropriation, appreciation, celebration, all these things kind of intertwine. And it's like, where will we be 10 years from now uh, when this, yeah. this kind of situation? I, I agree. Uh, Cause thinking about like the, 
in the 90s, there were a lot of black TV, mm-hmm. a lot of black sitcoms, mm-hmm. and then it kind of disappeared for a long time. Yeah. And now it's back. And I don't want this to be a cycle. Like, can we just continue it now? Mm-hmm. And like you said, the move the conversations beyond like, oh, black people are more profitable than I thought. Yeah. And it being like, no, this is just really good. They mm-hmm. have talent. Um, and this is just something we should do. Yeah. So, yeah. I agree. So this is and this is why people who I pay attention to, people like Jay-Z, who are really taking ownership in a lot of the stakes, you know, things like Tidal, where you're trying to compete with other uh, brands like, of course, Apple Music, which is one of the top out there, uh, but really taking ownership with our own art artistry and and what we give to the world uh, makes it so that we can also control it. Because um, that's the thing when we talk about how can mm-hmm. we fix this or how should it be addressed? Dr. Brown briefly mentioned it is the fact that she felt that we gave our stuff away too easily. And so, OK, where I'm a big artist, and I'm just going to give my stuff to Apple Music and they're going to make all this money off of me. And then when I'm not selling number one, it's going to kick me to the side versus if you're working maybe with somebody like a Jay-Z who understands the artistry, but also uh, the culture and blackness uh, will work with you longer, work for you better. Uh, and, and we have control of our own kind of how we can how we commodify certain stuff in our own culture so i think that does play a role but yeah mm-hmm. good conversation nonetheless well for as always um you know continue to review and rate us on itunes uh, be it black and highly dangerous uh email us at bhdpodcast at gmail.com follow us at bhdpodcast on instagram facebook twitter etc share us with everybody share us with your friends your family your enemies like we always say and as always continue to be the oppressor's worst fear if you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.